Welcome to CFO Insights, the leading podcast for finance professionals in disruptive tech, brought to you by the Startup CFO community. I'm Guy Hutchinson, and I'm the host of the podcast, as well as being a tech CFO. In this episode, we're going to talk to Christian Wattig. He's the founder of FPNA Prep. He's an expert in this space, holding a passion for teaching and coaching those all-important skills in financial planning and analysis. In this episode, we talk about the importance of financial storytelling for CFOs and all those working in FPNA, how scenario planning trumps what-if analysis, and he'll shine a spotlight on why machine learning is front and center as we go forward for both analysts and CFOs alike. Christian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. That's fantastic. Well, look, I mean, we've been in touch for well over a year and have always been impressed by your prowess in FPNA and your interest in in teaching this really important topic and uh, making sure that finance professionals of all levels really understand what the potential is of a amazing FPNA competency. Uh, and I've done a, a couple of events with the Startup CFO group that were really well attended. And and um, just really pleased to have you on and hear a bit more about the, the kind of things that you've been doing. Yeah, sure. So I've been in FPNA for a bit over 13 years. I started out in consumer goods at, at Procter & Gamble. Um, and then I moved over to Unilever. It's another large consumer goods company. Uh, some of you may know some of the brands like um, uh, Breyers, Magnum, and ice cream, Lipton tea, or um, Duff soap products. I, I had an amazing opportunity at P&G to lead a $100 million investment business case. Learned a lot there. Maybe we can also talk about this a bit more later. At Unilever, I had the chance to lead three different FPNA teams during the seven years I was there. And then after doing my MBA, I was really curious to look at other industries. And so I moved into working for a tech company, a website builder company called Squarespace. And I was fortunate that uh, I was there leading an FPNA team when we took the company public. So I had a great experience you now looking at how do we understand the business really from all angles to get the CFO ready for a first Wall Street uh, analyst calls. And that was a fantastic, fantastic experience for me. And during the time, I also realized that challenges that FPNA or finance people face are often very similar, even though it's a completely different industry, right? There's not much in common between um, a small uh, or medium-sized software company compared to a large multinational consumer goods company in terms of the product and the numbers and the processes. But the challenges that FPNA and finance people face are very similar. And that got me thinking about maybe there's something I can do to help people um, develop their FPNA skills. So at that time, I started building a Unilever to already um, I, I let the internal finance and finance development team there where I was building courses for my fellow um, for my fellow colleagues there about Excel and productivity, et cetera. And that's really where I fell in love with teaching because I felt it was so exciting to, to sit across from a group of people and really see their eyes light up when they get something. You know, when I tell them an Excel formula that would make their life easier. That then translated into getting me set up to build my first uh, FPNA course was about uh, two years ago. 
a live course that I teach via Zoom. And yeah, it, it started to take off. Until now, I had over 400 students who went, went through that. It's really exciting. And then I started also professionally transitioning more into, into training. I worked for um, FPNA software company, a small, fast-growing company, and I was the head of training there. And then after doing that for some time, I realized, okay, now's a great time to go out on my own, build my own company. And that's what I'm doing now. So now I'm a full-time educator teaching finance teams how to develop their FPNA skills. That's an amazing journey there, Christian, and uh, a rare one, right? Because you've you've learned your skills through partly through MBA, uh, through some of the more established corporates you were with, and then Squarespace as a high growth tech business has been a, a perfect sort of place to really finesse those skills. And I've noticed in my career, actually, that there are not that many finance professionals who love teaching. And so like the people that are great teachers are surprisingly rare beasts. Um, but one, one, one thing I'd love to pick up, right? So our group are predominantly tech CFOs. So why is FPNA interesting for tech CFOs? Because it could easily be seen as something that was for the financial analysts or sort of somewhere else in the finance silo. Yeah, sure. So happy to happy to take a step back there. FPNA stands for Financial Planning and Analysis. Um, and I think what a lot of people associate with FPNA is you you do a forecast, you do a budget, um, you do some variance analysis, and then you create a management reporting deck at the end of the month where you have a lot of charts and a lot of visualizations, right? But that's a very narrow view of FPNA, and that doesn't really capture how CFOs can make can make the most out of it, because if you do FPNA right, you can do much more. You can influence strategy, for example, and influence not just strategy of the finance team, but really the company-wide strategy. Because the thing is that unless you're a very early stage startup, your companies is companies are drowning in data these days, right? Especially now that we have more and more access to real-time data. And they are, uh, executives could spend all day going through reports and, and, and KPIs, right? But where FP&A teams at a lot of value is going through that and looking at, okay, what's the story? What, what are the few metrics that really matter right now? Because they're telling us something about trends that may be changing and they're pointing to decisions that if we make them now, they can have a big impact on the company. So if CFOs really master FP&A, they can shine a light on what matters right now, which then is a great way to influence the entire company to move in the right direction. Because, you know, what gets measured gets managed. Nowadays, everything gets measured, right? So we have to point the light. And FPNA really is all about figuring out what's signal and what's noise, right? What, what in all this data and all the reports and all the visualizations, what is the crucial piece that I need to put in front of the CEO now, that I need to put in front of the, you know, COO now? To, to help them see what's going on right now. That line of argument that you have there, that's really why, in your view, a big part of the CFO's role in terms of turning the data and the FPNA 
function into good business outcomes is about them becoming this storyteller, this person that can extract the most salient stories as to what's happening in the business and what the business could therefore do to take advantage of what's taking place, what the opportunities could be. Exactly. And the last thing you said about the opportunities could be, that's really crucial because just telling the story of the business accurately isn't enough, right? Then FP&A teams are still leaving uh, something on the table. What it comes down to is taking that story and then determining what are the, what is a concrete recommendation to the business, to the rest of the leadership team that could help us capture an opportunity or mitigate a risk, right? That's really where great FP&A teams and great CFOs can differentiate themselves from, from average CFOs is by making these concrete recommendations rather than just saying, here's a bunch of data, you figure out what to do. Yeah, that's super interesting. And one of your lines of argument, because I, I know we talked this through perhaps in one of your previous events with our group, is that one of the dangers in FP&A is that you can accidentally over-engineer. Almost you've got too many metrics that uh, lead to too long a pack and that you look to teach sort of more more summarized ways of being able to make recommendations with the data? Yeah, yeah. So I can talk a bit more about that. So I've worked with companies where they had a monthly management reporting deck of 60 to 70 slides. You know, I, I can't imagine that any of the executives look forward to going through all of these slides. And so what I advise the company to do is not not eliminating necessarily all these reports, right? Because they still have a place and they're still, executives may run into situations where they do need to know the nitty gritty details of what happened in the general and administrative expenses uh, in the month before, right? But what I recommend companies to do is separate the management reporting deck into two parts. The, 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 and the first part, the executive summary, is where the FP&A team does the hard work of figuring out, okay, which five of the 300 metrics that a company tracks do we need to discuss now? Which are the, the ones that if we look at them closely, if we really understand them, that can unlock, unlock the opportunity to capture uh, an opportunity here. And then the second part of the deck, that can have you know, all the visuals, all the slides, but that then should ideally be automated. Ideally, fully automated, you know, where it just takes a few minutes, a few clicks, and all these slides are standardized and created automatically because then the FPNA team is freed up to spend the time on where you can really move the needle, which is figuring out what's the story and what are the recommendations from the story. And I would think, playing that through my head and thinking about my experience as a CFO, that presumably is a, a happier, more fulfilled FPNA team as well, right? Because that piece, which is there's just a lot of metrics to keep an eye on, that should be mechanical. That should be that you've set up a platform of some kind, you punch a button, and you've got it. And then the craft is the craft is to make sure that the most salient data points, the most important comparables, they are understood. There's some commentary on them. There's some deep dive to find the true drivers behind those variances. Um, is that is that how you see teams evolving as they move towards best practice? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So traditionally, uh, FP&A teams in larger companies have been organized in a way where you have uh, some business partners in, on the team, and then 
they they um, share their their stories and their slides with um, a higher level team that does consolidation, right? Consolidation and reporting it used to be very common. Companies have that. But those are the rules where you're exactly right. They're not very interesting. It's difficult to hire for them. What some CFOs do is they rotate people through that, you know, after a year, a year and a half, because otherwise, you know, they would start lose um, good people. But that's the traditional way of doing it. The modern way of, of doing FPNA is um, not even having this role that all they do is consolidation, but rather having that automated with 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 tools. That does make a huge amount of sense. I'm sure uh, that's definitely the shape of the future. And moving on a little bit to what you alluded to earlier, Christian, which was budgeting. You talked about that that being very much the cornerstone of an FPNA team in most traditional businesses. But of course, if you take it to our world, which is predominantly VC-backed startups or scale-ups, uh, it's very easy to find that you've got a planning model it very quickly becomes a rolling plan that you're updating many times a year. And there'll be a steer probably from your external board directors to run scenarios. So probably one upside scenario, one downside scenario. Uh, how do you find the limitations of that type of thinking about planning? The thing with planning is that if you're not doing it well, then you're spending a lot of time creating a PL, a pound sheet, and a cash flow statement that get outdated six months later, right? Because the business is moving at a very fast pace and um, the environment is changing so quickly that your numbers just become outdated. But then it, it really is a, a bit of a waste. If you're doing your budgeting well, though, even when the numbers get outdated, you should still be able to get value from them. So how, how do you do that? How do you get there? I teach that in, in detail in my, in my course as well, but just to give the... The highlights here, it's really about realizing this, this principle of plans are useless, but planning is everything, right? It's a quote that's attributed to um, former U.S. President Eisenhower. And basically what it says is you need to focus on the process and you, of planning and you need to set that up so that the executives take a step back from the day to day and they look at, okay, what are our strategies? How what are the tactics that we use to achieve those strategies? How do those tactics translate to action plans? How do we plan to measure success against these action plans? And if you do that right, and then you marry that with your with a bottom up with bottom up planning, then you get to a point where you're creating a document that's much more than just a PL balance sheet and a cash flow statement. It's a document of what are we going out there trying to achieve? How are we planning to achieve it? And what are the assumptions going in there about things we're changing, about how we're going about doing our business, things we're deciding to continue doing? And if you do that well, this document, you know, which is often a driver-based plan, um, becomes remains useful even if the numbers are outdated. Because when later in the year you see a big variance between your actual results and your budget, you can go back to that plan and see, okay, which of the assumptions we made six months ago were incorrect? And what does that tell us about the future and what we can do differently now so that we can we can work around that? And then planning becomes incredibly useful. When you play that back, Christian, what I love about that really is that 
it's just an ongoing diagnostic that you understand all the moving parts in your business and that each time you have a material variance of any part of your business that's manifesting in your financial somehow, you are forced back to examine the, the documentation around what you think the process for the business outcomes are and having to refine essentially how you build a plan for the future. It's essentially a form of continuous learning. That's exactly it. Yeah, the, the goal, the main goal for me of uh, a planning process is to facilitate organi organizational learning throughout the year. That's that is super interesting. I think a lot of people would hear what you're describing there and would go back and look at uh, a budget that they might have built nine months ago and would easily say, well, actually, I've got sheets and sheets and sheets of spreadsheet and I don't really have a document that describes the steps because I thought the spreadsheet was telling me what the steps are. But actually, you probably need to have a almost like a Google Doc or Word Doc, um, so that you're describing step by step what the assumptions are about the business and what drives growth and what drives your your cost elements and all this kind of thing. And I know that when we talked um, at one of the live events that we ran for our group here, um, we also talked a little bit about the difference between the scenario aspects of the bit I hinted at earlier where maybe your VC wants to see best case mid-case, worst case, and what a what-if analysis looks like. Uh, I think a lot of people would use those terms interchangeably, but of course, they are quite different, right? Like those, those are two completely different types of processes. Exactly. So I often see those terms confused, but they're, they're really two completely different processes, like you said. So what-if analysis is a mathematical exercise, right? What happens to our profit if sales drops by 10%, right? You can do things like, okay, let's look at our variable expenses. How will they change? How will our fixed expenses impact that? And then you you, you could you could use that to do to do a, a best case and a worst case scenario, but that's disconnected from the the broader business and the context of the business and the actual you know business drivers scenario planning on the other hand isn't just a mathematical exercise that's where you look at what do we think are likely scenarios you know and but with likely i mean scenarios where we understand the the mechanism so just to give an example scenario planning could be so we're planning to release this new product in the market if our competitors see if our main competitor sees that as a threat they may discount their product by 30% because why 30% because we've seen them do that in the past was the deepest discount that they've done in the past and then as a result of that what would that do to our business right how would that affect our sales and how would we respond to that by lowering our um, price? How, what would that do to our profit? What would that do to our ability to market the product going forward? And then, of course, how long will our, do we think our competitor will be able to do that until they run into financial issues? So that's scenario planning, which, as you can see, goes much further than just flexing the numbers by plus 10%, minus 10% to get to a best-case or worst-case scenario. And, and yeah. On on some level, that that scenario analysis forces the business to think a bit more clearly about 
threats and opportunities. It, 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 it's more the way that an MBA type person would think about a business, less the way that perhaps an accountant would think about a business. Uh, but the question that I have is, you can end up with some very large number of scenarios. And it's probably quite hard to build consensus in an organization about what are the most likely three scenarios that we face in the next 12 months? Do you have any sort of tips or steer for people that, that might say, I really want to go away from what if and towards scenario, but I struggle to work with my C-suite to reach a view as to what those scenarios might be? Sure. So I can share a concrete exercise that um, we've done back when I was working at uh, at PNG, where we where scenario planning was was extremely important because um, we were planning to launch a laundry detergent in South Africa, and at the time, you know, PNG is market leader in the laundry detergent segment globally. Most markets, you know, there were there were there were market leaders, but in South Africa was one of the last major markets globally where we didn't have any presence. We didn't have a product because there was a very strong local competitor with over fifty percent market share, and um, PNG actually attempted earlier to launch, but then had to ab- abandon the the effort because the competitor found out before we were fully uh, on the shelves. And then they were able to preempt our messaging. They would change the formula, so they had could claim superiority, and PNG had to cancel the launch. So when I was there in the in the finance team, we were doing another attempt, and we knew that this time we had to be better prepared. There was a lot more rules around secrecy and what we would share with the retailers before we go there. And we also wanted to make sure that we have a better grasp of this possible scenarios and that we really understand what are the likely few scenarios because you're exactly right if you have 30 different things that you think could happen uh, how do you prepare for that right you can't so what we ended up doing is an exercise that's called red team blue team or wargaming so that's actually um, a concept that originates in the military where you split your team into two sub-teams. One team is the red team, the other one is the blue team. The blue team plays the usual role of um, the, the, the our company where we're launching the product and we're trying to um, we're trying to respond to what the competitor is doing. The red team, on the other hand, steps into the shoes of the competitor, right? They they're now co- have a completely sh- complete shift in the mindset and their job is to come up with ways that they can... Um, they can beat us, right? That they can win, uh, they can prevent us from holding, getting a foothold in the market and um, respond to the launch in the most aggressive way possible. And when you do this right, so so how, how, how did we do this? We actually involved the entire cross-functional team, you know, not just finance, but we included, you know, R&D and marketing and sales. Because for an exercise like this, that's really about creativity. It's it's beneficial to have people uh, together who have different backgrounds, who have a different way of thinking about business. And we for an entire day at an offsite, so people were really immersed. They were out of their uh, business day to day, and they were doing this exercise. And what we ended up getting from that was incredible. You know, much better thought through ways of what could happen. 
And the reason that a technique like that is so successful is typically when you're um, you know, in a meeting thinking about, okay, let's talk about what could go wrong with this project, people are hesitant because people typically, you know, they feel like they need to remain positive. They feel like they don't want to be seen as someone who doubts the success of the project, especially when it's a project, you know, that maybe it's a favorite project of the of idea of the CEO. If, but if you say, tell people, hey, you're the red team, you're the competitor, your only job right now is to come up with ways that you can, uh, that you can hurt us here, then that's a complete mindset shift, a complete reframe, and you get much more creative ideas and you also get more realistic ideas because you're not just making things up out of the blue, you're really immersing yourself into, into this. Um, maybe people are also curious what ended up happening. So our competitor in, in South Africa ended up doing something that even we couldn't uh, predict. So they actually, when we launched the product, they had people in many of the large retailers who would give uh, give out coupons for anybody who took our laundry detergent and who put it in their in their cart. Gave them coupons to say, "Hey, if you put that back on the shelf and take ours, we give you a percentage off." <laughs> we did not see that coming, despite all the scenario planning, but it prepared us to to react to that much faster. Anyway, even though it wasn't the exact thing that we predicted, we knew there would uh, we expected they would do something with promotions, and we already had plans prepared so we were much faster in responding to that and in the end you know the launch was a success yeah that's a superb story actually i think that will resonate a lot with many people that would listen to to our cfo insights podcast and um the thing that that strikes me there christian then the similarity with when we talked about the budgeting processes is that essentially this is a business process uh, and by having great business processes you greatly increase the chances that you react to threats opportunities etc in an optimal manner and it doesn't really matter that at some level uh, the competitor did something that you didn't anticipate what did matter is that you chose the best business process to identify what what you could be facing because you did that market launch and by the way the note i was making what you told that story was it sounded to me like you forced them to do a very expensive thing to try to defend their market share right i'm sure that was very expensive for them i mean labor costs in south africa are lower than in other markets but still yeah that was very uh, expensive for them and the other part that we've touched on here is and, and, and it's probably me that that, that that used the word the most is uh I was talking about spreadsheets. I was like, you've got an FPNA team, they build big spreadsheets. But at some level, that that comment is a bit of a reflection of the last 20 years and might not necessarily represent where FPNA is going in the future because there's some really incredible tools on the market. I mean, some of them have been around for a decade or more, but in the last three years, we've seen some really big steps in FPNA tools. Now you see more and more tools come out that are specifically targeted at the small and medium-sized businesses markets as well and there are subscription models so they become more and more affordable um, but actually also had it, it's not just about you know selecting the right tool and finding a tool that 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 fits that has features that you like it's about more than that right it's also about getting buy-in from the broader team because if and in the end no one uses the tool 
your your investment really goes goes to waste, right? And not just use the tool, but also embrace it enough that people are motivated to learn about all the features it has and how it can how it can help them. And so, actually, I have um, a, a story there to share as well. When I was working at a, at a, a consumer goods company. We, I joined a, a team. I was leading an FP&A team there, and when I joined the team, I realized that the the forecast is consolidated with a bunch of spreadsheets, and <laughs> I was shocked by the extent of them. So they had twelve different trackers that they got from twelve different, you know, uh, business partners that managing different parts of the business, and then each of these Excel files had ten tabs. So 120 sheets in total that my team had to consolidate into a larger spreadsheet, you know, making sure that all the formulas are right, et cetera. And it was also very, very time consuming. And so I, I knew that, that I have to do something about that. And so because I wanted them to be able to use the time not to crunch the numbers, but to go out and challenge assumptions and do analysis and come up with recommendations. And so... I wanted to see, okay, do we do we have budget to do this? Um, the answer was no, we don't have budget to do this. It's maybe it's uh, common uh, <laughs> in these days. And so I said, okay, fine, I'll I'll talk to the uh, CFO to to get additional funding for that approved. And I'm sure we probably also had to align that with uh, with the CEO. And when I made my pitch and I said, look, you know, we can save this amount of time, we can we can add more higher value tasks there, that didn't resonate. I didn't get the approval initially. And so I went back to the drawing board until I realized that what is even a bigger value add of these tools is um, financial controls. And it's the ability that when you have something in a tool and you consolidate it, you don't have to worry that the formula is wrong and you don't have to worry that you're accidentally using um, a sheet that's outdated, right? Version control, also incredibly important because, of course, a CFO has to rely on the numbers being accurate. Not, not in the, only in the sense of forecast accuracy, but also that there are no mistakes in the consolidation and the rollout because there's nothing more embarrassing for a CFO to uh, presenting a number that isn't correct and it has to be changed later on. And so... Once I showed these benefits, was able to get the budget, and off we were to select a vendor and then implement it. And the main user of the budget of the tool in the end was the marketing team because they were the ones giving us the the, the estimates for the forecast for the for the budgets, and we wanted them to be able to enter it in a tool directly so that finance wouldn't have to uh, consolidate anything. But I realized quickly that they weren't that uh, fond of the idea. You know, they were happy with the way they were doing things. They liked the, liked the Excel sheets. They said they were easy to manage. They were easy to use, and they weren't super excited about uh, learning, having to learn a new tool. They were already very busy. They said. And so at first, you know, we tried to just convince people broadly and try to share all the great features, and that didn't really uh, go anywhere. And so in the end, I had the idea, okay, let's let's talk to a few individuals who have influence in the organization. So I, I, I went to a, a senior uh, marketing manager who I knew, you know, who's been in the company for a long time and who I knew others look up to and respect. And I also knew that she was particularly critical of our tool rollout, you know, because she 
wanted to protect the time of her people and wanted to make sure you know that they can do have more time for their for the day job because she was concerned that this would take too much time away. And so I, I met with her one-to-one -one a few times, and I ended up offering her to be part of the implementation team. So be part of the meetings where we talk to the vendor, where we have discussions around, okay, which features are we implementing? How are we implementing them? Are we asking for customization? And when she started to join those meetings, it all completely changed. You know, she felt empowered, and she felt she shared her views, and we made changes to to how we're rolling out the the tool based on her inputs and in the end she ended up being one of our biggest supporters and i really think it comes down to the fact that we empowered her that we gave her a voice that we gave her a say in this and she talked to her her broader team and that in the end i really really credit that to why the rollout was a success and why people accepted the tool and, and started using it right away. I love that story, Christian. It's a classic example of a great case study in partnering where you have brought sort of non-financial stakeholders into what was predominantly a financial project and therefore and thereby uh, really, really maximized for engagement and their belief that this was going to lead to the right business outcomes. So look, I mean, one of the things we were talking about earlier was the degree to which some of the latest technology was impacting finance and financial tools. And I think I was I was saying when we chatted a few weeks back, you know, seeing a lot of machine learning type uh, things, particularly in transactional systems. So in the kind of thing that would help you to reconcile your receivables or process large volumes of payables and get those reconciled back against bank. But actually, you were interested to remind me that actually machine learning is a, a real power when it comes to financial planning as well. Yeah. So we just talked about tools and really machine learning is another tool. And now there's a lot of talk about AI and generative AI and our tools like ChatGPT can help you uh, write emails and you know soon it will be able to help you with reporting and financial analysis as well but what people forget is that machine learning actually has been around for some time and fpna teams at companies that are thinking forward and that don't hesitate to try out new technologies have been using machine learning for forecasting for for quite some time now and so i, I want to share an experience i had with implementing machine learning for automating a forecast, because what's important to keep in mind for to, what's important to know for CFOs when they're considering machine learning is that it, it requires a bit of a mindset shift in a, in, in a certain regard. You can't treat a machine learning forecast the same way you do a traditional forecast. So let me let, let me explain. So when I was a consumer goods company, I worked at before we were managing. Um, a working capital forecast. So that's where we were looking at inventories and we were looking at, okay, how long does it take us to turn our inventory and how long do we um, does it take us to collect the money from our from our customers and how long do we, does it take us to pay our vendors, right? And all of that went into the working capital forecast. So a lot of moving pieces. It was a very complex beast of a, of a forecast to manage. We had a large spreadsheet for that. We actually had multiple spreadsheets, multiple ways of doing it. 
And we thought that that would be a great candidate for machine learning because of its complexity and because of the opportunity to save a lot of time. And so we didn't have any data scientists working at a company who could do that. So we hired a third party, a third party overseas, who would put this machine learning-based forecast together for us. And they did. It actually was a fairly fast uh, process. And the, we ran the, the machine learning model for the first time. And the forecast accuracy actually ended up being better, slightly better than what we had before. And of course, it saved us, it saved us a lot of time. But then the, the, the leadership team wanted to know, OK, we still have a 3% variance between actuals and forecasts. What's driving the variance? How do you explain the variance? And I was a bit lost at first. So I talked to the, to the third party and said, look, you know, we have to do the variance analysis here. How can we, why is there a 3% variance? And he looked a bit puzzled and he said, um, I, can't, I can't tell you that. I don't know anything about the business. And then I said, well, okay, I don't know anything about how the machine learning model works. So how about you explain how the model works? Because then maybe I can point to what's causing the variance and what's maybe not working as well. And he started this long explanation with talking about, oh, you know, we have 15 different algorithms that compete against each other every month, we use neural nets and halt winter and autoregressive averages. And I didn't understand anything, right? Very, very technical. And so I asked him to explain it differently. And actually, we ended up realizing that it's really uh, some of these algorithms are a black box, even for the people who are uh, experts and who put them together, because they just behave in 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 sometimes mysterious way. They even called black box models by the data scientists, and so I was puzzled. I was like, okay, how how can we use this if we can't explain the variance? And it took me a while that I was looking at the problem completely from the wrong angle. You know, in a traditional forecast, when you're trying to explain forecast versus actual variance, you're looking at, okay, how did you build the model? And maybe how can you tweak it so that um, you're taking all the fact right factors into account and you're, you're getting a better accuracy? But you can't look at it that way for a machine learning algorithm. Instead, you have to focus on the inputs, so what you're feeding the model with. That really, once I realized that, this all became a lot easier. Because machine learning algorithms, the way they work is you can put 10, 20, 100 metrics into the machine, um, and it can handle you know, any, any complexity. But it makes a big difference what you're feeding it with. So or, originally, we just fed it with historical working capital data. But um, we realized that there are ways to improve the accuracy by tweaking that. So by adding additional metrics, you know, things like um, inflation or other macroeconomics metrics, for example, can have a, a good impact on a model because they all impact the business, of course. And once we did that, we saw inflation, we saw forecast accuracy improve. And that then was how we did the explanation. Now we said, okay, we changed our inputs in this and that way, and that resulted in an improvement in, in that resulted in an improvement in accuracy. 
I, but it took a moment also to explain that to the leadership team because they were expecting to get variance analysis a certain way. But with machine learning, you can really only focus on what's going into the algorithm. But once we had everyone on board there, it ended up being a, a big success. We ended up running our traditional forecasting in parallel for some time, but we, we phased that back. And yeah, machine learning ended up making a big difference. It does sound like a, a real leap into the future. Uh, and, and hearing you tell that story, Christian, it's clear to me that whilst it was clearly it was clearly like a next generation approach to producing that part of the forecast. It did require a much more substantial overhead in explaining why that was valid and making sure that the business respected um, what you were putting into the plan there. And that took some that took some convincing and that took some explaining because yeah, people are, are used to looking at the business a certain way and now we're asking them to, okay, you have to treat machine learning separately, but people got it in the end and it uh, yeah, ended up working out well. Yeah, 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 it's a fantastic example. Christian, uh, you and I would happily talk about FPNA uh, until the cows came home and it's a really enjoyable mm -hmm. episode to spend time uh, talking through and recording and sharing with many of our listeners. I think we should uh, let people know before we wrap up where to find you, right? So you've relatively recently uh, transitioned into running this full time. So like this is your business. You you are one of the few people um, with a global presence for for actually teaching FPNA. Um, so where would people find you if they wanted to learn more? Yeah. So if people want to learn more from me, they can do so in three ways. I offer a self-paced course called The Art and Science of Forecasting. That's um, you know a, a, a video-based course where I, I teach you how to run multiple forecasting techniques in parallel to improve your accuracy. And we also walk through the budgeting process step-by-step and then there's a live public seminar that I'm teaching. It's called FPNA Bootcamp. Now I teach it about every two months via Zoom. And it's four work, it's six live sessions over two weeks, total commitment of uh, 10 hours, where we go much more in depth into business partnering and the financial storytelling, financial modeling, forecasting and planning. And then I also offer custom on-site training. So if someone has a, a larger team, would like me to do a customized training day for them, I'm happy to do that as well. And um, you can learn more about all that on my website on fpaprep.com. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure we can, uh, I hope we can put the links in the show notes as well. Right. We will make sure that they're there. That that, that all sounds like uh, a really great suite of materials, and there's a, a learning format for probably pretty much everybody there. So that's fantastic. Christian, look, it's been really good to have you on. Thank you very much for being our guest on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me, Guy. It was a great conversation. You were listening to CFO Insights brought to you by Startup CFO. If you're a finance professional working in disruptive tech and would like to join our global network, visit our website, startupcfo.tech, to learn more. This podcast was part of our CFO Insights series of discussions. And if you want to learn more about the Startup CFO group, follow us on LinkedIn to learn more about our community and the upcoming events. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast.